we get a little too attached to credentials too, to allow us the permission to start helping people. And so if I had fallen into that trap of the fraudy feelings of going, until I have a coaching certificate, I'm not allowed to say yes to this customer. We're back for another episode of Birthday Leadership. And as you all know, I love to delve behind the scenes to understand the human behind the business. And today does not disappoint. I have a friend who I've personally worked with and her story is absolutely remarkable. Lydia Lee is the founder of Screw the Cubicle. She helps build profitable and purposeful businesses that help you create the freedom that you crave in your life. She's been called the freedom instigator. And today's episode, we talk about navigating stress, dealing with burnout, how she walked away from a partnership, which was not easy, especially with the background that she's come from as an immigrant and so many different things wrapped up in what can be described as your identity. We talk about knowing the right person to call on when you're on shaky ground. When you decide to walk away from the partnership, what do you call? Calling your parents might be like the default thing to do or speaking to certain friends might be the default thing to do, but actually that's not what's the right thing for you to do. We'll delve a bit more into that. We talk about not burning any bridges and how she was able to turn her former boss into one of her first clients. Talk about remaining flexible in life, how she was able to, again, move in a particular direction rather than just focus on destination and how that allowed her to, to experiment and ended up her moving from Vancouver to Bali, where she's been living for the last eight years or so. Talk about being a bootstrapper, being scrapper to start your business, not focusing on being on the shiny things and how actually in a world and a day and a time, the space that we live in, being able to be authentic and have that human touch rather than systemizing every single thing actually can set you apart. Lifestyle choices and living a simple life can be the best thing you can ever do. Let me stop talking. Let's delve into Lily's story because there's one don't want to miss. Welcome to another episode of Thrift Day Leadership. How are you doing, Lydia? It's really good. And it's so good to be on this side of the interaction because as you said, we've worked together. I know so much about your podcast on a sort of like coaching business development level of when we've talked about the direction and focus for this podcast. But being a guest, it's kind of nice to be on this side talking to you and seeing like how this all develops from the background, from a guest perspective. So thanks for having me on. <laughs> absolutely absolute This time around, I get to ask the questions. <laughs> I know, exactly. I don't grill you this time. You get to grill me. I always like to go way back to, to the origin story. So... I want to go back to a younger teenage. In fact, let's go further back. You're born in Malaysia, right? Malaysia. Yeah, in a Malaysia. little island called Penang. Did you live there for too long before you moved to Canada or? So I lived in Penang till I was about six years old. And then we moved to Kuala Lumpur, which is the capital city in Malaysia for a few years. And then we tried to immigrate to Quebec. Canada because we had my mother's uncle lived there and spon was about to sponsor us for 
citizenship in Canada, but my parents had to learn French, fluent French, I should say, within nine months, and they failed the test. <laughs> and so we were I know, it's a lot. And they were rejected. So luckily, my mom is a tough cookie. I got a bit of that from her. And she said, well, if it ain't Montreal, it's, it, we're going to try somewhere else. And so she reapplied for Vancouver with another relative. And yeah, so when I was about 10 years old, we immigrated to Vancouver. I grew up in a, a suburb town called Port Moody. Very small. People probably won't know it. It's about, you know, 45 minutes out, outskirts of Vancouver. Okay. So you had that realization in your 20s. I'm curious, in your teenage years, what was, what did you want to do? What did you want to be? Did you have any aspirations whatsoever? Any focuses that you're like, when I grew up, I want to be X, Y, Z. I don't know how familiar you are with Asian families, <laughs> but the Asian mentality and the way of bringing up kids is not about asking, what do you want to do? Like when you grow up, I remember my friends telling me that where they'll say, my mom asked me what I want to do when I grow up. I was like, parents ask you that question. Um, <laughs> it's not common in an Asian household. And if there's any listeners who are Asian, they will say that they, they know what I'm talking about. OK, and so that wasn't a question that was ever asked of me. It was about let's make sure you have good grades at school. And if you had an A minus, it better be an A plus next time. <laughs> we strive for excellence, you know? I think some positive aspects of that is it really taught me about work ethic. It taught me about having the energy to go after things I wanted. But I think the way that I was brought up, to be honest, from my parents, right? And that's all they knew as well in how they were brought up in a very sort of Chinese cultural household is you do what it takes to get the highest paying job that is going to be secure and safe and had nothing to do with what you're passionate about or what it is that you think you might enjoy doing is sort of, let's just see what you're kind of good at. And hopefully there's a career that gives you that longevity, right? That we hope you have to have security. So my mother, for example, worked for um, HSBC for 35 years from all the way from Malaysia to Canada. So even though in Canada, when she started a job or when she interviewed for jobs, they disregarded about 10 years of her experience in Malaysia simply because it was a third world country. It was in the Western world. So even though she was in management positions, getting awards and accolades for her experience at that bank, she started off as a switchboard operator at a very junior role because that's sort of how it works when you immigrate to a Western country. So she took a bit of a hit to her ego, I'm sure, right? And it's sort of how she instilled a belief upon me as well, right? Which is that you to make it out here as an immigrant, you better work two, three times as hard than most people to get some somewhere, right? And so the pro of that sort of advice gave me the work ethic, but I think it also, the negative part of that was that I sort of never understood what were my what was my purpose or what was my intention to do anything at all even the schools i would choose or what i wanted to do when i graduated or the first job that i got there was no intention behind getting those jobs except that it was going to pay the bills help me with my student loans and potentially be a step up to a secured industry that i could be guaranteed a pension 
right, at some point, because that's sort of what my parents really valued as part of the reason why we got into Canada in the first place is so that I could get a pension and, you know, live in a world that I had an opportunity, which I've always been obviously very grateful for, right? But the confusion for me, though, I think, is that as I, because as I mentioned, my parents divorced when I was very young, and I moved out of the house at 18. So I kind of came from a bit of a broken household because I went to live with my father. We had a very tumultuous relationship. He wanted to be roommates instead of my father. So I paid him rent at 15 years old. I learned the value of a dollar, um, right? Like 15 years old, I paid rent to him. Yeah. And that was about half of my paycheck working at the mall. And so that right away, as you can imagine, that trauma of going through not having a parent, not having security in my life, when I decided to work in the workplace, right, in my early 20s, it was all about hustle just to ensure that I was safe because I didn't know what that felt like to be safe in a, in a household. It's, a, it's an interesting one, actually, because one of the things that I've been really focused on or I've found, especially working with, with my clients, has been around identity and how our identity can lead us to doing things or staying in places and positions for different reasons. And a lot of times I talk about identity being around the title, the money, and all those kind of good stuff. But there are times when that identity comes down to even what you've talked about, now, which is security. Like, I, I liked, I craved security. And me having that job or that position gave me that that peace. And that's why I stayed there. So I think that's a really important point. Yes, and I didn't really discover this until I had to see a therapist in my mid-20s when I had that massive burnout story you know about, which is me having a business trip to Russia in 2011, 2012, where I had a complete mental breakdown and developed temporary agoraphobia in a hotel room because my entire nervous system literally malfunctioned because I had not gone on holiday for about two to three years at that point. I was working about 65 hours a week on average. I was on the road six months out of the year. It was a very high pressure job for such a young profession, a professional like me. But I, again, like I said, my work ethic really made me strive for bigger and better things, which is excellent, right? But it, it was at the sacrifice of my health in order to get there, right? And so when that happened to me, it was a huge, this was the turning point for my life. Something that was the scariest thing that ever happened to me, but it was also probably the thing that changed my life forever. And because that event, kind of forced me out of the game for a bit and I had to take a sabbatical, I had to take a sort of health break from work, I did see a therapist to figure out what was wrong with me because that's what you think happened is something's wrong with you psychologically for that to happen. And luckily, my therapist was amazing and didn't you know shove a, bu a bunch of pills down my throat and instead really supported me in revealing what was the true cause of this mentality I had that I was sort of making my life such a, a a crazy roller coaster. Whereas my colleagues had the same positions and they weren't working themselves to the bone that way, right? And so what was I responsible for and accountable for in creating that reality for myself? And sure, the workplace culture and certain things were part of the dissatisfaction, if you will, for that job, but it certainly wasn't the whole thing that caused that massive health burnout right? And so facing some of these truths of what I've created for myself and where did that come from? Who was that person in my life ever to tell me I had to work like this? What was I really trying to achieve 
because if it was money, and I certainly had a lot of it at that time, then I would have been happier, but I wasn't. So what was the meaning behind the chasing of more? Chasing for the status, chasing for being recognized at the workplace in that capacity. And what was I really, what was the need that I was really trying to meet with the behavior that I had in my life? And so those aren't easy questions to answer. But I think as I went through these interactions with a therapist every single week for about three months, it allowed me to really see the root story, the narrative that I brought in from my childhood that I was living out as an adult and unconsciously doing it as well. I think the, not from an Asian background, but in African Caribbean cultures as well, you get the same thing where the whole notion of two, three, four, five times, you have to work as hard and, and drive for excellence. And I always talk about the, there's a burden and the cost attached to that that we don't really think about because it can drain so much of you from a mental, emotional kind of perspective. I mean, even with some of the history that you've had, I mean, you had, you were, you were climbing up the corporate ladder. You were doing absolutely amazing. You had the six-figure job. But in that, before you had to the point where you got the breakdown, did you experience joy or happiness when you achieved all those different milestones? I think that on a more sort of superficial level, every time I got the commission, because I worked in business development, so every paycheck, every cycle of a quarterly bonus was what I waited for, right? Like, what did I make this quarter? Because I knew what I would make it as a base, but every time I hit a goal out of the park, we were right on these sorts of gamified tier commissions as well to encourage motivation to sell more, for example. And I was certainly competing a lot in that sphere. And so part of my joy, if you will, was looking for that number and making sure that I reached that number and, you know, knocked it out of the park every single time, right? Which I did because I worked quite a number of hours to make that happen, right? And so the joy was that piece of, potentially my identity feeling like I was achieving something because I got a great acknowledgement from my bosses because they were obviously making money because of my effort as well. Obviously, my mom would really love that I made a lot of money at that point as well because we were we grew up in poverty. So having a child that could afford a house and have a car and you know have some savings and things like that was already a huge accomplishment that she was very proud of. But it was short-lived because as you have seen from my hours of work every week, it was quite hard to enjoy the fruits of my labor, right? And so I wasn't taking holidays to spend that money on experiences that allowed me to rest and refresh and be reinvigorated for coming back to the office. I had I brought my work back during the weekends, so I didn't have time to spend that money on whatever else that would have brought me joy. So I think on a superficial level, it did because I thought that sort of status of having a great job. And at that time as well, during sort of the peak of my career at that industry, I was also offered a partnership. You know, that was a big deal because I was the youngest person to be offered a partnership. And the carrot was big. They were saying it was a couple that owned the school. And so they were saying, we're going to retire in the next five years. And this could all be yours potentially because we don't have children to give it to. And so you're kind of next in line to lead the show, which was a huge ego boost for me being the youngest person and very hated, by the way, at my workplace, because there were so many people that had been there longer than I had. 
So part of that was navigating the stress of the conflict that happens with colleagues when they believe you don't deserve it because of seniority, potentially. But they were sort of giving me that boost of considering me for that partnership based on my results and less about how long I've been there, right? And so this was sort of, again, very tempting to want to stay for and say, God, is this ever going to be the only chance I'm going to get at, at the time, you know, 27 years old, right, to get a partnership like that and know that I might have my future set for me. But I also knew after going through that burnout, nothing was really going to change about the way I was working because I actually brought up the reason why I was burning out at work. And they sort of didn't even acknowledge it and just wanted to pay me more money to kind of get over it. And so I knew at that point that was never going to change. I'm curious, what was the conversation like with your mom when you told her you were leaving? I didn't tell her I was leaving until I had some time to formulate the plan because I knew that when I was going through that transition, like it took me about nine months to quit my job. And I certainly didn't tell her month one when I decided to get the plan rolling in the background. Uh, and part of that is because I knew that her language of love is always going to be about warning me about the most horrible things that's ever that will ever happen to me. That's kind of always my mom's way of loving me, right? And I knew that in her perspective and in her lenses of life, you know, where she came from, how hard she has to work, she had to work to get to where she is at the moment. She was never going to be a mentor or someone that I could talk to about these things without feeling more uncertain about it, if you get my drift, right? Like, so the comfort I was seeking for in terms of inspiration, belief, someone to be in my corner, that wasn't going to be my mother. I, I love her, but it wasn't the right person to call upon to help me when I was in shaky ground at that time. And so I knew that the time I had to speak to her was really around the time when I'm ready to take the leap so that I can really tell her my reasoning to do it, what I prepared to, to do it, you know, how I prepared to do it. And I had been working on it for a little while so that I had a little bit more confidence behind my actions and that I've sort of challenged myself and weighed the different options that I had before leaving my job, right? So when I told her I had already decided, I had already given my notice, there was no going back. And I knew that whatever would come out of her mouth wouldn't have sort of affected my outcome. Right. And of course, she was extremely worried, as every mother would be. She thought I was having a midlife crisis a little too early. She thought I needed just a holiday, perhaps. And she certainly didn't get what it was all about. And she sort of went, don't burn bridges just in case you need your job back. You know, and I was like, all right, mom, that's fine. And I think it took her a long time to even realize that this is the life and work I'm choosing. So it was only about Three years. So I've been in Bali now for eight years this year. She only visited me on my fifth year I've lived in, in Bali. That's how long it took her to come down here because she kept thinking I was still on some sabbatical and that I would eventually come back to real life when I st start, stopped having fun or something abroad. She never really understood in her perspective that this was a completely different lifestyle change <laughs> that I was committing to forever, that I would never be back in corporate, that I would never even potentially be moving back to the city. That's a lot. I guess it's a lot for, I guess, you to deal with. But I think there's also some couple of points you made in there. One, you recognize the fact that I need certain people in my corner while I'm going through this change. 
that's unless you're going to be my mom or whoever. And that's a, that's a key factor when it comes to making transitions. There are times when we speak to the wrong people and they end up sending us backwards rather than helping us move forward. So knowing and recognizing that is important. But also you having that determination to be like, I'm going to shake off this old identity once like, once you go into that recognition phase of why you're feeling the way you're feeling and having the strength and courage to be able to be like, I'm going to put a pattern into place and do this. That is also really, really important to help kind of navigate. And the role you end up taking afterwards or the business, the first business you had after you left your corporate gig, what was that? Because it's not what you do now. My first gig was actually remaining in the industry I left because that was sort of what I would categorize as a transition business, something easy for me to start. I had the Rolodex sort of prepared for it from my network and circles that I've already built equity with being in that industry. And I knew the market really well. So I was very careful to not be competing with the school that I was working for. I had no interest actually to have the same business as, as them. And if anything, I was looking at problems in the industry and issues that I could bring a solution towards because I've been in it for such a long time. And I actually created an agency to help bridge some of these programs that weren't designed in Canada. So my job in that organization was to help bring more international students into Canada for work and study programs, volunteer programs, ESL programs, university pathway programs. And so I worked a lot with the Embassy of Canada, promoting education in Canada to foreigners and international students to come and invest in Canada. And so as I was really familiar with what was out there inventory-wise and what was being offered, I knew there, were an op- there was an opportunity to do things better from my position. And so when I started my consultancy agency, I actually took on my bosses as my first clients. That's why I negotiated before I left my job. And so at first I said, yes, I'm leaving my job, but there might still be an opportunity for us to work together. And so here's what I was very honest about what I was building, making sure they knew I wasn't poaching clients to make sure I knew that actually I would be sending students to their school right? And I would be introducing a very new way of working between both of us that might be fruitful still, right? That we could still be colleagues, we could still be peers. And I think they were happy to sort of figure out what we could do together, simply because I've done a lot of great work for them, and they didn't want to lose me completely, and that I would support them in hiring to replace me, but I would still support them on certain projects that we would launch together. So that was a great transition to give me a security, a little security net of about 20 hours a week of work and leave some time for me to build my business because I certainly couldn't do it when I was working the 65 hours a week kind of role, right? So I, I knew something had to give, like I had to either negotiate part-time consultancy or quit my job completely if I wanted to take this seriously. Because I tried doing it as a side hustle and it just wasn't working for my caliber of what I was responsible for in my full-time job. So yes, luckily that turned out really well for me in, in terms of having that business. And I really enjoyed learning from that business for a long time. And it taught me a lot about working with international clients, which is what I do now as well, right? Being based in Bali. It taught me a lot about sales and building relationships with people who are not physically in my space. So that allowed me to 
actually, I was doing more remote work then, you know, dealing with China and Taiwan and people in, in Thailand from Vancouver. And so being on Skype, we didn't have Zoom back in the day, being on Skype was a very normal thing for me to be doing deals across the internet that way. And so that, again, allowed me to feel normal in that sort of setting. And I think when I started Screw the Cubicle, right, which was an accidental business, Screw the Cubicle was a blog uh, that documented my identity crisis transitioning from employee to entrepreneur and really a place to send my family and friends to go, here's what's the update. Stop asking me questions. I'm not having a midlife crisis or a meltdown. I'm literally just having a life change and I'm writing about it. So there's where you can go, right? And it wasn't until a lawyer from Toronto, a reader for a long time, messaged me and said, how much do you charge to coach me? And I went, what's a coach? And I had to Google it. And that was the start of my second career. And then that was eight years ago, you know? And now obviously it's my it's my full-time job. <laughs> that is... Wow. It's crazy how something that you do for, I guess, for yourself and I'm sure was a relief just to get out some of those thoughts and those feelings as well as informing family and friends what's going on and just putting it out of the world without even thinking this can become a business actually became what was the business, the business that you do right now. I mean, when you think- It is fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, when that person contacted you, were you like, um, I don't know what to do yet. Like, this is not business. Like, what was going through your mind at that point in time? To be honest, I almost wrote back and just said, I don't do coaching. It's just a blog. <laughs> I mean, that was literally my default response. And then I'm so glad I went, what is a coach? And did the Googling and went, oh, there's like people that mentor other people. And then I was like, what does this mean for me? Do I have to go back to school for four years? Am I a therapist? Like I, you know, I had to kind of research a little bit about what that meant for me. And when I started to kind of go down the rabbit hole a bit of that research, I started to see that being a coach or a mentor or a guide doesn't have to be complicated. It could be simply that I'm sharing insights and my journey to someone else who's going through it behind me in a way, or I'm just like one step ahead of them, right? I'm not the expert of all experts, but it allowed, if someone trusted my story, if someone, and that's the great thing about a blog, right? I sort of was building trust and credibility simply by sharing my story. And when it resonated with someone in particular, and she said that she had a very similar background, she had a very similar personality type, similar resume, right? And so that itself was already the bonding. She didn't say, could I see your credentials for coaching? It was really clear to her that we jive simply from her being an avid reader of my blog, right? And of course, we still had to kind of talk out and have a, a conversation about what that looked like in terms of an experience for both of us. But that was a great example of sort of trusting that sometimes we get a little too attached, talking about identity, we get a little too attached to credentials too, to allow us the permission to start helping people. And so if I had fallen into that trap of the fraudy feelings of going, oh, unless until I have a coaching certificate, I'm not allowed to say yes to this customer, right? And so I decided, okay, I know at some point I might go get my coaching certificate, but maybe I don't need that right now if someone believes I can help them. Maybe I just call myself a mentor. Maybe I just call myself a guide. And if the word coach makes me feel a little bit intimidated, <laughs> right? Or like, ah, everyone's a coach or whatever. Why don't I just call myself something different? So my name was the Freedom Instigator for about five years. 
right? That's how everyone knew me as the freedom instigator. And that was my title that allowed me to, you know, it, it was a great conversation starter. It was kind of a, a, a nice flavor or energy that I come with when it comes to the purpose of my work. And I'm so glad I took a necessary pause during that first inquiry from that reader, because again, it allowed me to go, I don't know a lot about what I'm about to do, but I'm going to say yes anyway and open the door to see where this opportunity might lead. Freedom instigator. I like that. Why did you, why did you drop that? I like that. <laughs> that's a great, that's a great title. It's like, I'm the freedom instigator. Straight away, you're already intrigued. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, it is still part like uh, in my signatures and on my website, there's still Freedom Instigator. Now people kind of know me more of like the work reinvention coach or the work reinvention strategist. And that's the word reinvention really resonates with people as well, because that is a huge crux of my work, right? A core part of my work is reinventing the way we work, reinventing the way we define success, reinventing lifestyle choices to kind of live life now instead of waiting till you're 65 to do it, right? But, you know, people kind of call me both, right? I've even been called like the midwife of meaningful work, right? And that's kind of a cool one. I'm like, I am a midwife. I do have to birth this baby with them. And, you know, there's kind of fun titles that people give you. And I like that. I like playing around with kind of interesting, unconventional ways to say something about yourself or talk about your story, because I think we do get attached a lot to like, you know, the titles that we have. And, and to me, I'm just so much more than just a coach or just a career coach, you know? So it's hard to kind of pick a label Sometimes. So that's why I'd rather just pick my own name and say that and describe to people, here's the body of work I have. It's a little bit of business coaching. It's a little bit of career coaching. It's a little bit of lifestyle design. And hey, you're going to get the best of me if I'm allowing myself to not be pigeonholed, right? Into just one thing forever. Yeah. There's nothing, personally, there's nothing worse than just being put in a box and just be like, this is it. And this is all you, because we're so much more than that as, as human beings. We're so capable of, of so much more and being able to expand and push and learn and stretch is really amazing. And that's something I've, I've definitely seen even like the conversations we've had and stuff like that. It's like, there's more, there's more to come out. There's more to pull out. There's more you can do and more you can achieve. I really, really love that you dig into that because you use, you, you meet someone as the human. That's one of the things about it. it's like, I'm seeing you for you as the human being, not as your title or not as what you've been. And you lean into that from your own story, your own experiences. And if you're able to be like, oh, I don't like coach. I don't feel like a coach, but I am something else. And then this person's really connected with me because they know my story. What's more? What's out there? What can I do about this? And you've been able to do that. When did you move to Bali and why Bali? Bali was also a little accidental. I feel like some of my best achievements have been accidental. <laughs> and that's the beauty of life, isn't it? I think it's when you remain flexible, you know, you, you remain sort of where you don't actually over plan. Because as a type A perfectionist, like this has been a big learning lesson for me and still a learning lesson, you know, of that whenever I plan something to the T, it, it loses the creativity. It loses the adventure part of what life I think should be. When I first was even entertaining the idea of living and working abroad, it wasn't a long-term thing. It was sort of an experiment because I needed more testing experiments to allow me to make bigger decisions because I didn't at the time had the courage and the boldness to kind of decide that's what I'm going to do. And, and, and maybe I never will. You know, I, I am a calculator risk kind of girl. You know, people do tend to think I'm, oh, you're, you're so courageous. You do a bunch of stuff out of the box. And it's like, 
Yes and no. I do things with calculated risk. And I think about these decisions maybe a lot more often because I have the time and spaciousness to do it when I live a quieter life and simpler life as well. But back in the day when I was living in Vancouver, I started my first business, right? And I started the blog for the first year in Vancouver. It's a very expensive city, as you might know, as is London. And I started to realize that I was taking on a bunch of clients I didn't want to take on just to pay the bills. And that made me feel like crap because now I really hate it being a business owner <laughs> because I just kind of needed to get more clients in order to pay high rental fees for uh, a place to live in Vancouver. And the cost of living was really high. And I wasn't a, I didn't take out a loan or a small business loan or anything like that to start my business. I literally bootstrapped it and did everything on a very minimalist budget and decided to launch my business that way. And so I just sort of knew that if I wanted to change the algorithm a little bit, right, where it's like, okay, I know in time I'm going to be successful, but it's my first year or two of business. It's not that wealth isn't going to come right away. I have to be realistic about I'm a learning, I'm learning new things to be a better business owner. But where, what are other things I can adjust in my life to help myself not feel so pressured with having to have high costs in my business and in my life? And so I decided that maybe I shouldn't be in Vancouver the entire year if I didn't want to keep paying these crazy amounts of money just to afford a decent life. What if I was to travel instead of waiting for the two-week holiday or the three-week holiday at the end of the year? What if I did this for six months a year? What would that look like? What did that feel like? And it was just a really curious question. I didn't really know the answer to it, right? And no one I knew in my life was doing anything like that. But I had read the four-hour work week about four times at that point. I had still not really resonated with it, to be honest, like in the beginning, because the stories and case studies in there, and I love Tim Ferriss, but at the time he was when he was writing it, there were a lot more examples with like coders, programmers, web designers, dropshippers, right? E-commerce people. And that wasn't my gig, right? I was a service-based professional that needed to be on phone calls with people and look professional. And I couldn't envision myself being able to do this without pissing people off because I didn't again, see that reality of that people would be okay paying me even if they couldn't get into an office space with me. However, I thought, what's the worst that can happen? I will just service my clients right now who've trusted me already. And they agreed they would do uh, Skype calls with me while I was abroad. And I would just make this into the new structure that this is the only way to work with me is remotely, is virtual. Everything would be this way. And so I decided to take six months to experiment with going back to Southeast Asia starting in Cambodia. I was in the Philippines. I ended up in Bali for a break, which I thought was about a month of a break. And then I just kept coming back in. And six months turned into now eight years. And so it is kind of funny how that happened, but I certainly didn't plan for it. And I really do think that giving myself that experiment to say it was just six months, that I could just come back to normalcy if I wanted to, gave me the courage to do it because it didn't feel so permanent. And I think that taught me a great lesson even now when I'm scared to do something, I will just say, okay, well, what's the boundary of time? So that if you need to save yourself, if you need to back up, back out, if you need to change course, if you need to put something to bed, you can do it. But don't let that uncertainty be the reason to not do it at all. Wow. A lot of times I think it's that, I say the finality of things 
can become a massive fear for people. And that's why I love that example. You know what? I'm going to test it out. I'm going to see what works and see how it goes. And if it doesn't work out, then come back. And that's the thing that always, always makes me laugh is like, you still have a choice to go back. You have a choice to go and do something different. You could turn around. As long as you don't like, okay, that, that's, it's not destination as such, it's a direction. That's the direction I'm headed in. And if I like it, I keep going. If I don't, I can turn back around and go to a different direction. That's the beauty of life. You're not wedded and like, oh my gosh, I've, that's, it's not messed up. It's not failure. It's just learning. It's just experiences. And it's growing and, and maturing. That's you experiencing the richness of life as opposed to anything else. Absolutely. And it's not really our fault that we didn't come to this notion of thinking, you know, naturally, because in society, we've been conditioned and structured to think this way, right? Like when I was graduating from college, like people expected you to know what the forever career you're supposed to have. What pressure to put on a young person that they have to choose the right degree, that they have to choose the right career path, like from the get-go, and you climb that ladder and you get your pension and away you go and you have this great life, apparently, right? And so there was no room to make mistakes, I think, in normal society, right? Like like if you dropped out of a specialty in, in university or change course, it's frowned upon sometimes that you sort of skipped now back again another year. Your parents won't like it. You're behind other people now. Or, you know, if you took a, a gap year or went away for a year to travel, now you're behind other people. Someone else is going to get your job ahead of you, right? Like, so there's all this com- competing for jobs and status and positions in what we're taught as we graduate from schools and get into the workforce, right? And when we change careers, it's really hard too. We don't change careers a lot because, again, that feels like a setback, right? Because you've worked so many years to get somewhere. And if you change your mind, God forbid, it really feels like you're flushing down the last 10 years of your life right down the toilet. And that's why it's so hard for people to give up that corporate identity because it feels like it's starting over again when actually it's not. It can be an expansion of what you've been doing and it's just a new chapter, a a rebuild of your body of work. You still get to keep all your experiences and all those things. But that's not what we're taught to live a life of purpose, right? So it, it feels scary, but it, it is abso- absolutely is our birthright to to think and yeah. behave this way. I guess what, like I said, it, it goes back to, I'm thinking back to the, the early 20s and 30s and when we talk about education and the way that it was done, it was very much programmed for people to come into schools and then you leave and then you go into industry and you stay in the industry and you go through that whole industrial revolution kind of thing. Even though the world has changed, the way of schooling and education hasn't changed. And therefore, when I go back into work and we carry in that whole kind of process, and it's those who decide to, I guess, break the confinements of that traditional way of operating. We're like, ooh, that's a risky thing. Or you're courageous. I'm like, no, I'm just expanding my horizon and just building on my experiences. And that's why like, it's the new chapter. My experiences I've had in the past haven't gone away. I'm just building on them and using them for a new a new wave, new lease in life, shall I say, which is really, really beautiful. And when you look at now with the pandemic, everything now being remote for some people or hybrid for other people, and even a lot of people leaving and quitting their their jobs over the last two years, kind of going through that process similar to yourself where it's like, why am I here? Why am I doing this? Why am I 
flying back and forth on planes or working six or seven to eight year kind of weeks? What part of life am I missing out on, whether that's for me personally or with my family or those kind of different things? What are your thoughts as you observe all that thing happening in, in the world right now, especially with experiences and background that you have? We are certainly living in an interesting time, you know, of change and transition. And it's funny because I think humans do need a little bit of like a pattern interrupt to happen. Like my pattern interrupt was the my massive breakdown in a Russian hotel room, <laughs> right? Everyone's got their moment of something happened, whether it's a health scare, a divorce, a death in the family, a, a, a layoff, like whatever is that thing that shook your world up that forces you to look at things clearly. It's the most painful thing sometimes to experience, but it's also the most revealing moment of your life sometimes when we choose to look at it that way, right? And so for me, I think what's really happened is through the pandemic, we've had a very massive global pattern interrupt. Everyone experienced it at the same time in a lot of ways. And that has brought up for people as they have more, less distraction, in their lives because we were forced to be at home and spend more time with our families, not, you know, sort of zone out sitting in traffic or, right, sort of do our normal routine. It sort of allowed us to see what life was for us in reality. And it was either something you were happy with or something that you were not happy with and felt you needed to change. And we had a lot more time in a lot of ways and flexibility in our schedules during the pandemic to not for everybody. I should be fair to say people with families had a pretty hard time, you know, having to manage daycare and, you know, like schooling from home and all that. So it was a whole new ball game for for those families. But, you know, people had a bit more spaciousness, if you will, in their minds, in their household to kind of think about where they're spending their time and how they're feeling about their lives because they were no longer living on autopilot. They weren't being distracted and sort of just moving with the motions by default. It was a wake up call in a lot of ways, that interruption, right? And with that interesting situation, I've been seeing a lot of people asking this question of, is is where I am where I want to be five to 10 years from now? And when I started realizing that when I took a little break in between my work in the workday, where I could actually go for a walk at 12 or feed my kids in the morning without worrying about what, rushing to work, they've got a new experience, a different texture of richness, of a different context in how they start their days, for example. Things have changed in their day-to-day. So it made people really question, like, wait a second, I kind of want more of this. And also it made me question, a lot of people question whether or not some of the way that they were living their lives in terms of being at the office too long or needing to deal with conflict at the workplace. So I had a lot of introvert clients, for example, that told me it's been kind of a blessing being able to work from home because as an introvert, being interrupted all the time or being forced to go into meetings constantly, that disrupted my productivity. So I can now get eight hours of a job done in four if you left me alone because now I, I can reward myself where in the afternoon I can just take off to the park and go for a run. And because I've got my work done, I've got a much bigger reward to be productive as well, right? So, so many kind of different ways that people are experiencing doing more from home, having more freedom with a bit of autonomy over their schedules and time, and the sort of extra stuff that causes us more time, like traffic, commuting, right? Eating out, spending money eating out because they're in the city, 
right? And how much money, much more money they can save if they were to not have to do things like that. Their relationships potentially improve during the pandemic because of it or not, right? It got you to question lots of things that you um, had in your life for sure. And I think more and more as we move back into the office, which is where we're at this year, right, in 2022, I'm not surprised, right, that people are sort of questioning and going, do I even want to go back to the office at all? Especially if I've been performing, especially if I've been creating results in my work without any issues, why should I need to do like go back to work as usual when this is working out for me? They, you know, have the, I guess you have the battle, should I call it, between the establishment who's so used to operating in a very particular structured kind of way and the shift and the, the change in the world with the people, the staff, the workers, the, those who are actually in those systems. And you have that, they're going at each other in a very opposing kind of ways. And I guess it becomes, which goes back to a point that you made earlier on, we all have choices to make. And it's having the courage and the bonus to be able to make the choices that are aligned to you rather than stepping into what I call the identity piece of all the organization, the name, the, all those ands that we can blow up a lot bigger. Because like you've kind of explained with your story, you can let that become the pinnacle, but actually you're going to get to the point where my life's going to smack you around the head. Like there's more to life than this. And how do you, I guess, have the boldness and courage where, like you just said right now, people are going to be thinking about that and they're thinking about the freedom they have to be able to feed their kids, go for walks, all that kind of stuff. But it's not always the easiest thing to step into that decision that you might need to make and go to that next chapter or evaluate that. So how can someone, I guess, have the courage or what's the best way you would, advice you would give to help someone process those feelings and thoughts that they might have, especially if they're coming up against their, their company saying, come back into work and they don't really want to. I think it's more than ever, you know, a, a wonderful opportunity to test out how we can negotiate in the workplace right now, because more than ever, employees have a bit more, I think, of the positive part on their side, which is that we've already have some proof in the pudding from being in a pandemic for two years. There's lots of great reports out there you can pull, stats you can pull of like the productivity level of employees skyrocketing because of the fact that they've been working from home and having more flexibility and autonomy. I think part of standing up for yourself or standing up for the life you want doesn't need to be a huge act of like, oh, I quit my job tomorrow and leave it all to chance and hopefully a business idea pops into my head, right? Like, And I'm really successful because of it. It doesn't have to be these like big leaps of throwing yourself off a cliff and hoping the parachute opens, right? And so part of practicing and seeing opportunity is about using the reality of where you're at at the moment and seeing doorways that are not open right now that you can create a door for, right? So kind of like my story at the time, I could have easily just quit my job and started the agency and that's it. But part of my putting on an entrepreneurship lens on was sort of going, are there any opportunities since I've done such a great job at my role? Is there an opportunity for me to negotiate something that wasn't offered by my bosses at the time, but I know could create a win-win situation for both of us? That I would have some security from having a gig and they would still have my talents 
to some capacity with a new agreement of a role that I would play. Right. That was me imagining a scenario that they certainly didn't offer me. Right. I had to negotiate it. I had to pitch it. I had to sell this idea of how it benefits them as well. So I think if you've been someone that knows and believes that you have been an asset to your company, you've been a valuable employee. And if anything, take stock of what it is that you've been achieving and been able to achieve while you have been working from home, for example. So telling that story is going to be really important in less about, oh, I just don't want to go back in the office because no one that doesn't help motivate your employer to not do that for you, right? Everybody wants to know what they get out of it too, right? So a way that you might be able to look at this is thinking about how will, if you were to pitch a hybrid work schedule or that you could test out working from home instead of coming back to the office in the next season, what are ways that you can sell this to your employer that's going to make sure that they're guaranteed that your productivity is going to be high, that the projects you've already been working on is already taking form or is successful, right? Or what are the ways that you're going to use this new en environment for remote work to actually improve the way you might output or create results or be creative simply because you're not in the office, right? Once they know sort of the end goal of like what they get out of this, and if you can pull up histories of revenues or projects being accomplished, right, of in the last two years where nothing changed, if anything, something improved around the whole thing, then it's really going to matter to their own livelihood, right? They know that this is going to be a win-win for them as well if you're able to continue working this way, right? And so even using a scenario like this to negotiate, to pitch, to kind of go, what if we tried something? And if you if this doesn't work, I might come back to the office part-time. But because I've been pretty amazing, I've been pretty good at what I've been doing, if not better, since I've been working from home, I need to prove to you through this presenting these ideas to you so that you might think differently about having a valuable employee in me, that I would be better if I had these choices, right? These lifestyle choices that I think would really improve the way I show up for work, right? So even taking this situation as an example of standing up for yourself, for telling a different story, creating win-win situations for both parties, that is already an entrepreneurship mindset, right? Of looking at options that can improve your life and not take what you're given, you know, like see opportunity in what you have. And don't you don't need to quit your job to learn a bit of those skills, I think. Yeah. I like talking about entrepreneurship, where there are a lot of skill sets that you can develop while you're still in the, if you're in the corporate space, an example, you can develop those skill sets before you decide to leave, if you decide to leave. But you can cultivate those ways of thinking, operating, looking for new opportunities, negotiating, key business skills that you're going to need if you decide to step out and create your own thing, because that's not always for everyone. But there are ways where you can still expand yourself and feed your curiosity while within your corporate um, organization as well, which I really like. Two questions before we, before we come to the end. What's your obsession with pineapples? <laughs> if you don't know, if you go on the screen of Capital website, you see pineapples it's true. everywhere. Like Lydia loves, absolutely loves pineapples. I was like, what is with the pineapples? I know, isn't it? Like I was even trying to think about the origin story of the pineapple. And I think what was, how the pineapples came about was when I had a redesign of my website 
I had a really crappy site when I first started. And then I sort of had a little bit better site. And then when I had one of my milestone years, sort of on my like second or third year of my business, I hired a really good designer. And uh, she said, you know, what's the, what's the feel that you want people to have uh, when they get on your website and look at your brand? And I said, well, I want it to be kind of fancy free and footloose, which is I'm barefoot right now, you know, like when I'm in when I'm working from home and sort of walking around, you know, around my house and around the neighborhood, even walking my dog. Right. It's sort of like very freedom, you know, like just sort of like casual and tropical and sort of freeing sort of colors and ambience right to uh, the website. And then she goes, oh, I just always see pictures of you. With pineapples, which is true. I love pineapple as a fruit. I There's so many of them in Bali, and I always sort of pose with them. I love just having them in my hand. And she's like, I kind of want this to be a part of, like, your identity almost, right? Like, just looks like a crown as well, you know? It's kind of an interesting fruit, and we'll just paint it purple. And so she actually took a pineapple, painted it purple, you know, my brand colors, that sort of purple color, and took pictures of a purple pineapple and then made it into sort of little icons around my website. <laughs> and so that sort of became a signature thing that I would just add to my graphics. And, you know, even when I was doing photo shoots and things like that, people would make sure there's a pineapple there. And it just became kind of a fun, like maybe it's like a, a Where's Waldo moment. <laughs> like if you see a pineapple, like my clients will say to me, like I went to the market today, I saw a pineapple and just thought of you. You know, like it's sort of everyone's, kind of talking about identity, you know, they've sort of attached the identity of a pineapple to me just because they see it so much in my website and my branding. But yeah, it was just kind of something fun that was supposed to be an icon of some kind on the website, painted purple. So it's like kind of like a drippy purple pineapple. And then it became the thing that people recognized the most in my brand. Another accident. I love it. See, this is, this is what I'm talking about. <laughs> but you actually, in, in that story, you, you shared on something that was like, there are times when people want to set up their business and they think, I need to have my website down. I need to have my marketing down. I need to have all these different things before I start. And you were like, well, the first couple of years, I was just like, I had a crappy website. And I just kept on going until I get to a milestone point. And then I developed and invested in those. But what was those first like couple of years really like when it comes to actually starting? Being a bootstrapper was a good way for me to go because it, it made me scrappy. And it made me like sort of be very smart in what I did spend money on. And I was very conscious about my budget, conscious about what was necessary because I didn't have a huge loan to spend. And it was a good thing because, you know, I think if I had took out a $10,000 loan or a $20,000 loan, I certainly would have found ways to spend it. And it may not have been the best return for me. I didn't know I needed a website. I needed somewhere that people can find me. But what I knew was going to be the most important part is to really spend the energy and time formulating my ideas, sharing my ideas. So I needed my blog, for example, to be the main thing. I didn't care that much about whether or not it has snazzy contact me pages or homepage, or I just needed my blog to be functioning so that I could really be writing and giving out my thoughts and being practicing being a writer, practicing being someone who has thought leadership to constantly be sharing stories, to constantly be sharing, to have an outlet to share what I was experiencing, what my clients were experiencing. And that turned into me going on to more of YouTube channels, right? I had a podcast as well. And now I, I write a lot more in my email newsletters, right? So, but that's never stopped for me. From beginning in year one to year eight of my business right now, I always write to my audience. It's never stopped, right? And so 
I knew that that's really the key thing that brought people to me rather than my pretty colors on my website or the pineapples or how great my photo shoot looks like. I mean, that gives people an impression, but that doesn't always convert to clients. I think what really converts to clients are me having conversations with them, right? So when my colleagues in the coaching industry was were automating everything, making sure that you never have to speak to a client, that everything went through a sort of evergreen webinar to an automated email sequence to like all these sort of copywriting, snazzy, like, like buy me, buy now, taking time sort of thing that every digital marketer taught you how to do in the coaching industry. I just never did that because it never felt authentic to me. And so I was old school. I would just pick up the phone and call people. I would DM them. I would send them voicemails on LinkedIn. I would really try to put a personal touch in humanizing the sales experience and getting to know people genuinely instead of it being just getting in a client and getting paid on PayPal while I slept. I was not into the passive income generating thing. I was about relationships and building a legacy with my work and getting to know my clients in a way that made me feel like I'm connected to the work, which makes me a better coach, right? So every discovery call I do, even though it's free and people get a ton of value from it, I get something from it too. A ton of great market research, a great understanding of how someone sees their problems, a great understanding of what matters to them. And that informs me about what I'm building in my work to ensure that it's helping these people to really get to the next chapter of their life and their work. So the more I cared about my clients, the more I made it manual in a way, you know, that was connection and building relationships. I think that's sort of what helped me to be successful because people left a conversation with me feeling like that's the most powerful conversation they had that day. And that's memorable versus an automated sequence that is sent to a thousand other people. I think in a world where the norm is the automated sequence, being able to have a human connection, as crazy as it sounds, actually helps you to stand out a lot more because it takes a lot more time and effort, like you said, but it's so much more rewarding and fulfilling and even allows you to, to filter the quality clients rather than just working with anyone and anyone just to get money in. But I guess everyone's different and it depends on where you are and what you're doing and why you do what you do. But if what you do, what you do is important to you, which is around the human, which is around the person, around the growth, then you need to take the time to be able to lean into that side of things. And you can scale in other ways. You know, it's not that I am manual in every parts of my business, right? And so I'm manual where, where it counts. I'm manual with my clients. I'm manual with potential clients. I still teach live, you know, like nothing is a replay and repeat it every quarter where I'm not really live, but I pretend I'm live. You know, there's that trick in the game. I don't do any of that because I, that's the, my values are my values. And I want everything that my clients see as a representation of these philosophies and what they can rely on me for, what they can trust me to do. Where, where I scale are other parts, you know, of systems, for example, you know, how to make sure that when I onboard my clients and all those things, there's a streamlined way of doing it with technology. But I like being a tiny business. I like being a tiny but mighty business. And so I'm a big fan of solopreneurship because of that reason. I love that I don't have huge overhead costs. I love that I don't have a big team. I work with specialists and contractors and project-based experts, but I don't have to sort of have full-time staff. 
I like that I can take off months in a year and not work at all. I, I like this tiny business that allows me to live my life. And that's just my flavor of what a business should feel like. If you want to build an empire and you want to have a multi-million dollar business, go ahead and do that. But I'm speaking to the people who think that that's the only way to be successful. And you get to decide what's that model of a business, what's a model of work, what's the seasons you want to work every year and design your business intentionally to allow that to happen. And so I think part of that intimacy of why I can do that, why I can pick up the phone and call people, why I can spend an hour sometimes on discovery calls is because my lifestyle choices also gives me that, right, that, that sort of freedom to be able to do that because I don't need that many clients every single month for what I do. I live a, a simple life. I live, I, I, as I said, I have less overhead costs and things like that. So it allows me to keep more of my money. I can serve more people. I don't have to, right? I, I take on just any client. I get to be very picky, right? And that lets me enjoy my work, which I think is a important part of fulfillment, deep satisfaction. And then that motivates me to want to grow this work because I love the people I work with. That is a huge difference. I guess my last question is, how do you define leadership? Hmm, that's a great question. I define it so differently every year, I think, for myself anyway. But I think really leadership is, for every human, it's the way that you really live the talk, right? I think leaders can say all sorts of things about what they stand for, but it's how they live their lives, what they represent as in their choices that they make that really showcase what their values are as a leader. And I think real leadership is when you take the time to care about other people and use your superpowers to amplify other people. When I think about the leaders that I've enjoyed the most that I respect for years to come are leaders that I've ever worked with that they are not the limelight of the entire show. Like they know what they're good at. They're confident, they're courageous, they're bold, and they're great. But their superpower is actually uplifting other people. Whether it's the skills they've got really shines a light on the people who need to have that light or the way they mentor is the way that it brings up someone else that can replace them down the road, right? That's the true leadership I think people remember that it's not about someone that just is wealthy, is successful, is someone that has lots of accolades, but it's actually someone that brings up other people. That to me is the true leaders, true leadership that we all need in the world right now. Wow. It's been a it's been a great, great, powerful, enjoyable, exhilarating conversation. Which I knew it was gonna be. <laughs> it's actually amazing how much I guess a life change and experience that you can go through can actually be channeled and utilized to make a difference and an impact to other people, to give them the same, I guess, freedom that you've experienced and the joy that you experience. And to look at life forever very differently as well, be like, I'm going to be intentional about the lifestyle I want to live and I'm going to try different things out. And for me, it's always about authenticity. I mean, the first time we ever had a conversation, what, about three, three years ago, three, four years ago now, that was one of the things that I came off that call. And I said to my friends, like, I was really, really struck by the, the realness and the authenticity that you came across with because everything that we were talking about, there was evidence like, I'm not just saying this because I want to work with you or I want to drag you in. It was more like, no, this is, we're just going to have a conversation. We're just going to keep it real. And that's something that you've always done. And I've always really, really liked personally because that relates to my values. 
So that's why I really wanted to have you on so maybe we can learn a bit more about you and about your story and how you approach things. If you go to strategicreativeable.com, you'll find out lots more information on how to work with Lydia. you find out on LinkedIn, Instagram, she's got an amazing Facebook community as well. And she's someone I would highly recommend just connect with. Just talk to, especially if you're in that stage of thinking about what's next. A great conversation that would definitely be worth your time. So thank thank you. you so much. I love stories. Stories are what connects us. And we bonded on about stories for, you know, when we first met as well. And that was one of my first questions I asked you, isn't it? Is what's your story? What's that story about from your childhood to being a father to what happened to you, you know, uh, as you were in corporate? So it's lovely that you do this podcast to not only share, like, I love that you don't only share and highlight success stories, like, just tell me how you got successful. I like that you really peel apart the layers of what makes you the human you are, right? And that's, I think, what really connects us is when we have the vulnerability and the transparency to share the not-so-sexy parts of leadership and success and still know that we can all resonate with that and that and more of those stories, I think, needs to be told so, uh, so that people know that being successful or being a leader is not what you see on Forbes. You know, it's not what you see in these sort of happy, like from poverty to million millionaire stories, right? It's from real and raw things that ha- people go through, sometimes suffer through in order to find the truth of who they are. So I commend you for sharing these stories, curating speakers and having a wonderful platform to bring these stories globally to people. I appreciate you coming on and being upward and vulnerable. Um, really amazing. So... Thank you very much, and we'll see you next week. Have a day.